Good morning. Welcome to episode two of Law and, Law and Life, proudly sponsored by TGB Lawyers, 6 Anne Street, Salisbury, and 11A Adelaide Road, Gawler. My name's Mal Byrne. I'm a partner at TGB Lawyers, and if you listened to last month's episode, we were talking about wills and estates with um, our senior lawyer, Rosemary Caruso, but today we're talking about the controversial and very personal and emotional topic of divorce or family law or matrimonial law with my fellow partner at TGB Lawyers, Jane Miller, who's also an accredited family law specialist. Good morning, Jane. Good morning, Mal. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. Off to a bright start. <laughs> so what what do you like to be called? Do you like to be called matrimonial lawyer or family lawyer or divorce lawyer or do you have no? I think the most part we get called family lawyer, but I'll answer to all of those. <laughs> okay. So talking about um, divorce and, and separation, I mean, there's actually a legal requirement in terms of, of separation for, uh, and time periods, etc., before you can actually get divorced. So what does separation legally actually mean? So separation for married couples um, would mean, to be, well, to be able to get divorced, you have to be separated for 12 months. Um, and it really is, the date of separation is really is the date that one person in the relationship communicates to the other that this relationship is over um, we've crossed that line where we won't be reconciling, we're finished with. It doesn't have to be the date that one person moves out of the home. So we do in Australia certainly recognise that sometimes couples are separated but living in the same house. In that situation, they might not be sharing the same room anymore. Um, they might start socialising separately. They might divide um, responsibilities for the children and home, you know, looking after the home in a different way. But they can certainly stay under the same roof and be separated. But they must be separated for 12 months before they can apply for divorce. Now, do they have to wait 12 months to sort out other stuff besides divorce? Uh, not at all. So this is comes up frequently. This is a common question asked to family lawyers, that divorce really is just the act of becoming unmarried. And in most ways, it's really unrelated to property settlement or arrangements about children. So most couples will organise their property settlement and arrangements for children before they hit that 12-month mark. Not everybody, but it sort of happens independently. And there are some couples that will stay legally married forever, but living separately. They might do a property settlement uh, and then they might spend the next 20 years of their lives still legally married, but they're separated and they just don't get around to getting divorced. Often that's because people don't want to get divorced because they just don't get around to it. It's a bit of paperwork. There's a filing fee um, that's many hundreds of dollars. Uh, so they're deterrents sometimes for people divorcing, but they'll certainly organise their other affairs as a separated person. And I should say at this point that while Jane and I are going to be talking about divorce and, and all the issues surrounding that, we're also here to take your calls and answer your questions. Um, so please phone in. If you have any questions about, um, you know, your divorce or your separation or any issues that you have with your ex-spouse or current spouse. Now, um, the most important thing, in my view anyway, that, that um, separating couples need to resolve, of course, is if they have children in terms of making suitable arrangements for the children. So... When what does the family court what does the, what sort of 
issues or presumptions does it have when it comes to sorting out arrangements with the children if the couple themselves can't sort it out between them? Uh, that's a very good question, Mal. Um, so what happens in terms of litigation about children? Uh, you can't start any litigation in the family court about children until such time as you've gone to mediation. There are some exceptions to that, but on the most part, most people have to try and mediate an outcome first. If they're not able to come to an agreement with mediation, then they go ahead and uh, have litigation in the family court. What they're doing then is they're asking the judge to make a decision about what should happen with their children. Once that happens, the court has to look at the Family Law Act. The Family Law Act makes it very clear the best interest of the children is the paramount consideration. So that's the thing, the best interest of the children is always what's on the, you know, the forefront of the judge's mind and other people that come in to advise. There is one presumption in the Act and that um, that's quite important and that presumption is a presumption of equal shared parental responsibility, which is quite a lot of legal jargon, I understand. Um, in the 17 years that I've been doing this job, it was, it's been called a number of different things, but the current term is um, shared parental responsibility. And it really means guardianship. It means who's going to make the significant decisions about a child's life, like what kind of medical treatment would they have, what major medical treatment that is, whether they can get a passport, um, what school they'll go to, what religion they'll follow. And so it's presumed that mum and dad will still do that even if mum and dad have separated. But in some instances, the court won't follow that presumption. There might be family violence. One of the parents might have disappeared off the scene for a while. Um, there might be something quite significant about that family unit that only one person should have that responsibility. But they're the exception rather than the rule. What we then see is if, for most people, it's equal shared parental responsibility, they're both going to be guardians, the court then has to turn its mind to whether equal time spent between mum and dad is the right thing for the children. So it doesn't have to order equal time, but it certainly has to, the judge has to turn his or her mind to whether that's right for this family and for this particular child. And I think that one's, that topic has been misunderstood. It's, it's, it's a bit confusing the way the legislation set out and it's sometimes misreported and sometimes there's an, an assumption that, uh, misunderstanding that it's assumed that children will live in equal time between mum and dad, but that's not the case. And I suppose it, the um, court is going to vary its views on that issue, and particularly in relation to the age of the child. I mean, uh, the arrangements for a young infant child are going to be much more um, difficult in terms of, I would imagine, shared responsibility or shared care anyway, mm. as opposed to a, a teenage child, for example. Definitely, yes, that's right. So the court would look at the specific child, so their age and developmentally where is that child actually at. So in separations involving younger children and meaning children under, say, six or seven years of age, what we see is normally, I call it stepping stones. That's the way I describe it to my client. But immediately after separation, you might put an arrangement in place that developmentally suits that child. But then after a couple of months, you might then build upon it. And then after a few more months, you might build upon it again. And over the course of sometimes two or three years, you might then eventually arrive at an end point, which will be the longer term parenting arrangement. Um, sometimes we've, I've been involved in litigation with teeny tiny little babies that are four weeks old, five weeks old, or even toddlers that are three years of age. In those situations, the, the children would normally, after separation, stay with whoever's been their primary carer and spend some regular time with the other parent, but then developmentally as the child 
um, moves along, well, then the time with the other parent increases. And it can increase up to equal time, but not, not for everybody. And what sort of say does the child themselves have in, in, in those arrangements? Um, when In the dim, dark ages, when I used to do family law, I'd get a client coming in saying, oh, I had you know Johnny on the weekend and Johnny, you know, Johnny isn't living with me. I'd had my access weekend, and but Johnny said to me that he wants to live with me now, mm-hmm. and, and and I'd be, you know, the client would be demanding that I immediately go to the family court, and 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 the, the judge would automatically make an order changing the arrangement mm-hmm. because Johnny said to me he wants to live with me on the weekend. Mm-hmm. Is that what really happens? Well, the tail can't wag the dog. So children's views are one of the things that are listed in the legislation as a. A topic that the judge needs to consider, and so if the ch- if the child is expressing views, then the judge needs to consider um, what's the age and maturity level of this child. And when I say expressing views, they have to be independently verified as well. It can't just be mum or dad saying that. Normally, a child psychologist gets involved, and they can certainly assess the child's maturity levels and the views that are being expressed. So. Certainly, if the child is expressing views, the judge has to take it into account, but the weight that the judge puts on it will depend upon how mature the child is and the other factors. What we do see, um, you've got to look at the, you know, the actual individual child and their personality, because we do see children saying to dad things like that, but equally saying to mum a different story that conflicts with that, because some children really just want to please mum and dad, they love mum and dad, they don't want to be put in a position of choosing and so they tend to um, say what they think that parent wants to hear. And that's where the independent psychologist is really critical because they need to be able to drill down into what this child is actually saying and what's going on for this child before making any recommendations. So we see that a lot. We don't see a lot of litigation for children over the age of 13 or 14 because once they sort of hit, for most children, once they hit that age bracket, then litigation's not normally the best way to try and sort out any kind of parenting arrangements because the children will often have strong views at that age and if one parent tries to go to court to get an outcome that's different to the child's view they really run the risk of alienating that child so those children those families we tend to refer them more to some child inclusive counseling with a psychologist and most of those parenting arrangements are sort of sorted out in that dynamic I suppose there comes a point where even if the court makes an order about a, child, a teenage child, the teenage child's going to say, well, I don't care mm. what the court says. I'm I'm staying here or this is what I'm doing and, you know, the court can try and make me do it, but I'm not. Yes, absolutely. Yes, we see that all the time. So there's sort of technically an order stays in place until a child's 18, but for lots of families the, the order becomes redundant because the child's expressing such strong views and they feel old enough. You know, once they've got a licence and a part-time job and their own friends... Um, you know, a, an old family court order about where they're meant to spend time with each parent just doesn't tend to um, appeal to them. Now, what about um, child children having their own lawyer? When does that happen? So sometimes the court will appoint what's called an independent children's lawyer. It's not every matter before the court, but certainly the more difficult matters do get one appointed. And um, the, the conditions for one being appointed, the most common, I think, is probably because the child is a little bit older and is expressing strong views. Um, another common one is if um, one or both of the parties, so mum and dad, uh, don't have a lawyer 
Um, so if someone's so if mum might be self-represented and dad's got a lawyer, the court will sometimes look at appointing an independent children's lawyer, and particularly if neither of them have a lawyer, that that ICL gets appointed. And that person's job, the independent children's lawyer, is is a lawyer. They're appointed by the court. Um, they don't necessarily meet with a child. In fact, in South Australia, they very very rarely meet with a child. Um, their job is really there to assist the judge in the litigation. So they are there to independently gather evidence and put that evidence before the court. They're also there uh, to be able to assist in any negotiations, um, which is particularly helpful if someone doesn't have a lawyer. And what we also see is that, that they are a party to the proceedings. So they get to stand up and say to the judge in their view what outcome would best represent the interests of the child and if an agreement is reached between mum and dad then that, that separate lawyer has to agree to the agreement even if mum and dad have agreed the ICL can say yes or no as well because they're a party that's been separately appointed. Yes well and one of the things I used to find in, in the dim dark days when I did family law was and, and I found it very difficult to deal with was that um, parents sometimes find it difficult to separate their own emotions and think uh, rationally and independently about the best interests of the child and tend to um, embroil the child in, a, in their own emotional battle with the, other, with the um, uh, spouse. Mm. And that, I found that could be very destructive of, of um, young children. Absolutely. We, and look, nothing's changed. We do see that. Um, you know, I don't, I've always worked with parents that love their children. You know, I don't, I don't think that this is about not loving their children or knowingly doing harm. I think most of the time when that happens, it's it's unintentional, uh, and they lack awareness that that's what's going on. I certainly advise all of my clients to make sure that they're getting appropriate support themselves to cope with their own emotions and grief about the end of the relationship. And that would normally take the form of going to see a counsellor or a psychologist or a psychiatrist. But also it can be broader than that. It can be speaking to the GP. It can be making sure there's a strong social network around you, you know, close family and friends, um, because children can be exposed to mum and dad's emotions, which can feed into lots of other things. Like we're talking about the child's expressing a wish to do something, you know, if they have an awareness that mum's unhappy about something well then all of a sudden they might be trying to say things to make mum feel better and taking on responsibility for trying to fi fix the emotions of mum and dad so there's no doubt the whole family hurts at those times and and sadly you'll come across sometimes and you mentioned it before situations where there is domestic violence or perhaps even the child you know child or children being abused mm. by one um, spouse how does the court um, approach um, those types of situations and those allegations. Mm. So in the last couple of years we've had an amendment to the definition of family violence in the Family Law Act um, which has been very welcomed because it's made it a much broader definition so we can have um, a threat, uh, sometimes a threat of suicide is, is a form of domestic violence or threats to harming uh, pets or children being exposed to the aftermath of a fight um, can be you know, the child being expo exposed to abuse themselves. So we've got a very broad definition now, which is um, excellent because the court now has much greater awareness of the existence of family violence. What we do see, though, is unfortunately it's very difficult to actually prove 
the existence of family violence. By its very nature, it happens behind closed doors um, and there's, by its very nature, there's a power imbalance between the couple and nobody, um, you know, tries to gather evidence for down the track. You know, they don't, no one keeps notes or, you know, normally they don't go speak to the doctor or normally the police aren't involved when the incidents occur. So we just find that really difficult once we're actually in court um, because it's normally denied. Mm. And the court, the judge has to hear evidence and make a determination. But certainly we're a lot better place than we were even five years ago about the court's awareness um, and attempts to try and, and respond appropriately. Okay, so perhaps moving on from from children um, to the, the financial side of things, um, I suppose getting to the nitty-gritty, if you're in a, a relationship or a marriage which has broken down and the two of you are still living in the same house, um, but one of you wants the other one to move out, mm. I mean, it, and you don't want to do the living separately under one roof thing anymore, or even if you have, is there any... You know, if, if, say, the spouse um, goes to work one day uh, and the other spouse is in the home, can, can that spouse go off and change the locks and basically say, <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, build a fortress, this house is mine and you're not coming back in? I mean, was there any... Um, what does the law say about that? We do see all sorts of... Um, it almost becomes like, you know, domestic warfare um, when everyone's trying to keep occupation of the home and there are lots of things done like that. And I mean, the first thing we always say to people in that situation is make sure you get some legal advice before you act uh, rather than doing something on the spare of the moment because it may have some pretty negative uh, ramifications later on. And what we will generally see in that situation is, you know, if I was seeing a client that was stuck in the home with someone they'd separated from, I'd talk through um, whether it, if an intervention order exists because there's family violence, well, that will obviously um, normally resolve it because the person that's subject to the order would normally have to move out. Um, you can make an application to the court for a, what's called a sole use and occupation order. That's normally a, quite a difficult order to get out of the family court. That's where the court can decide whether the husband or the wife should be staying in the house in the interim. And sometimes people do just try to use a little bit of persuasion uh, to get the other one out um, in the ways that you've suggested uh, and sometimes not quite as harsh. But for most clients in that situation, I talk to them about perhaps actually just themselves retreating because it's never a good idea to inflame conflict, particularly if there's children involved. And for most clients, we'd talk through actually an alternative plan where my client actually is the one that moves out, particularly if it's unsafe or unhealthy or there's children being exposed to it. And then we make an alternative plan to see whether we can get some financial support provided to them by the person staying in the house and set them up somewhere else. So say um, you and your spouse can work something out between you um, in relation to both, say, the arrangements for the children and the financial side of things. What What's the process in terms of getting that legally enforced? It's very important to turn your mind to that very question because I've seen lots of settlements, particularly property settlements, where people have had a handshake deal or they might have written it down in writing and then had a JP sign it um, or they'd sign it in front of a JP and they've transferred houses and they've paid money and they think they've had a property settlement. That is not binding at all. 
And I've seen lots of people where their ex comes back a year or two later and asks for some more money uh, and an updated settlement. So it's critical when everyone's on amicable terms, they've come to their own agreements, critical to get some advice to make sure that the agreement is fair and that you've actually looked at it from all angles and that falls in line with what a court would award you so that you're going into it with your eyes wide open. And then once you've done that, then you can, um, there's a couple of steps you can take, but the most common is to enter into an application for consent orders. And that's some documents that both parties um, complete and that get filled out. Often they'll use a lawyer to help them with that process. The documents then get registered at the family court. Nobody goes to court. It's not sort of, you know, a vicious battle through court. Um, just the paperwork gets sent in. And then about three weeks later, the court will send back the documents and they will have turned your agreement into a binding court order. And that then gives you something that's final, it's enforceable, so if it covers children's issues, then um, it can be enforced if somebody doesn't return the children when they're meant to return them and the like. Um, and certainly for property settlement, it protects any additional assets that you might receive down the track. Um, it makes sure that they can't come back and have another bite of the cherry. There's a very famous case where a man won Powerball a couple of years <laughs> after separation. They'd only had the informal agreement and his wife came back and made uh, a successful application to get quite a healthy um, split out of the Powerball winnings. So, um, and there's many cases like that. that. That's just one example, but it really just reminds me how these informal agreements really people need to turn their mind to whether they should be making them binding. And where um, you can't agree something between you on the financial side or property settlement side of things, what are the? Um, it's not necessarily fifty-fifty in all cases. That was one mm. sort of old wives' tale mm -hmm. presumption that people used to expect when they came in seeking advice. What are the things that the court looks at? Yeah, that's right. So there's no presumption at all about particular percentage. Once again, it's a case-by-case -case basis. Um, the first thing the court will do is it'll consider whether it needs to make an order, whether it would be fair for there to be an adjustment of property. Um, for most people, it is. And then what the court will do is try to look at what are the assets and debts and what are they worth? And then it'll factor in what have the contributions been? So what have, at the start of the relationship, what did each person have in terms of assets? Um, during the relationship, did either of them receive any lump sum amounts like an inheritance or a personal injury payout? Um, it might be that one person um, did some unpaid work to a property. You know, they might have um, been a, uh, a plumber and done extensive plumbing improvements around the property that they weren't paid for. So all of those sort of financial and non-financial contributions, um, generally speaking, the court doesn't break it down into what someone's earned versus what someone's not earned. And that's because you might have an arrangement where one person's the primary breadwinner and the other one's the primary parent and uh, homemaker. And those contributions are considered equal. So there's no... It, just because you might have earned more of the money doesn't mean that you get more out of the settlement. And then the next consideration that the court will look at will be future needs. And that will be consideration of whether one person might have a higher earning capacity. And so therefore they'll recover quicker from the separation. We sometimes talk about the earning capacity being the most valuable asset that you can keep at the end of the separation. So that gets factored in. Um, the health of the parties, their ages, 
um, who's going to have the care of the children because if one person's primarily going to have the care of the children, that person might need extra property settlement so that they can rehouse themselves appropriately or they might not be able to work full time because they're the ones that are going to have to do the school run or take the days off work sick if the kids are sick. So it's a consideration of all of those things and then largely um, at the end of that we sit back and say well what looks fair for this particular couple so it could be 50-50 but it could be 90% and 10% it could be all sort of combinations of, of things. So thank you Jane that's been um, really enlightening I'm sure for our listeners um, you've been listening to Law and Life proudly sponsored by TGB Lawyers 6 Anne Street Salisbury and 11A Adelaide Road Gawler and next month um, we will be we will have Luke, who's our expert on traffic law, talking about um, drink driving and other minor offences and the law surrounding that.